Hello and welcome to the Open College podcast series. My name is Oksana and I'm the host of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we have my colleague Daryl Mann. Daryl is one of our lecturers on the BA in Health and Social Care degree program, which we have in partnership with Oxford Brookes University in the UK. Daryl has many letters after his name and some of his qualifications include youth studies, counselling and psychotherapy, leadership and management, and at the moment he's completing a PhD in social science. He is definitely an expert on the topic of addiction after having worked extensively in areas of rehabilitation and drug misuse. Here is what Daryl had to say when I asked him what addiction is. Okay, yes, so I guess if if we're looking at addiction and what it is, I suppose it's first important to define it and when we go to start really unpacking that and, and, and defining what it is, really we encounter lots of problems. And as with any field of, I suppose, academic study, you come across different ideologies, paradigms, um, different approaches, um, and they all, you know, they, they have different um, opinions. They, are, they do often converge, but generally there's, there's different opinions. So I suppose, first of all, it, it probably looked at within the medical model. So if you look at um, some of the um books on mental health the disorders quote unquote there it's not a, a term that I, I, i'm too um happy using myself but in the medical model that's what's used and they define addiction and they would really only define it more so in this um, sense of substance addiction and how do you go about defining that so a couple of different characteristics to be diagnosed um, as a with, with substance use disorder and it's a real american term is that you would have to have um loss of control over the substance so you feel, feel like you can't stop using and um, it has to be characterized by tolerance i.e the longer you're using the more you need to use to get the same effect and then there has to be some other different um, behavioral consequences in, in in the person's life um around work you know maybe not being not able to hold on to employment hospitalizations and um, being sent to a prisons etc so that's that's the real medical model of it. However, we you know we can un- unpack it further and then look at behavioural addictions where there may be something along the line of food, um, issues with food, intake of food, um, sexual addictions, um, alcohol, etc. So there's quite a few. But really, what we're looking at um, on a general, I suppose, definition is that it is a behaviour or, or a substance that um, is causing difficulty to a person and there's a sense of loss of control and there is often a a number of consequences that go along with that, be that legal or societal. So it's really a a complex area. Oh yeah, no, there's there's lots to say about it. We'll just keep it to the kind of basics, I suppose. So when it comes to the types of addictions out there, obviously, how do you know that some, we'll stick to the substance abuse, I suppose. Mm -hmm. How can you tell that somebody has an addiction? Okay, well, great question. Great question. I think um, we may, I suppose, society, when I say we may, um, generally make assumptions about people who use substances and are indeed addicted or not. And they may often um, have that stereotypical vision of someone who's down and out and who may be harmless. They're on the street and you can really see the um, impact the drugs have had physically and and mentally on them. Um, So that's really probably one extreme. Down the other end of that spectrum, and it does occur on a spectrum from 
recreational to what being actually addicted, which we can probably go back to in a minute if, if, if you're interested in that. But the other end of that is then who's someone who is using drugs, who is psychologically or physically dependent. There are other characteristics of, of, of I suppose, a diagnosis of addiction. But they may, I suppose, they would their life would be such that you probably wouldn't recognise it for a the type of substance that they're using may not have that effect that maybe something like heroin or crack cocaine would have. But also then they, they're able to hold down their job. Their relationships may not be impacted hugely. They're not out committing crime, so they're not within the justice system or homeless system, etc. So they're not at that stage. And not that, that he won't get there, but they're not at that stage at that moment in time where the, I suppose the life would seem to be um, out of control in some way. Um, and, and, and their quality of life has, has really diminished. So there is people out there who take drugs. You wouldn't actually notice that they may be in your office. They may be in um, yeah. in our building. You may actually live with people like this and, and not actually pick up on it because um, I suppose part of addiction is also, you know, you know, being secretive and, and keeping it hidden as well as you can from people. So um, it depends on the, I suppose, the the, the, the drug of, of choice that the person is using as well. Cannabis may not present as much social or personal issues as as, as someone who was uh, who, who was using heroin and has a chronic heroin or crack cocaine addiction. So that's the how you can kind of identify various. It depends on the kind of drug that they're taking, I suppose. Well, yes, then, that would be on it. I can just sorry, if I could just come back in there. That would be yeah. on an observational level. So if you're yeah. working clinically with somebody, so a boy was working maybe as a counselor or a therapist with somebody, um, there'd be different assessment measures that I could all, also use as well. Mm-hmm. Um, someone pop in the mind would be the addiction um, severity index. Mm-hmm. And as I spoke to you, well, it, it, it's not all it's not all or nothing with addiction. It often occurs on the spectrum from recreational, which, you know, most people never develop a problem with drug use. They may use um, weed or cannabis on the weekend and that's fine. They use that recreationally. Or they may either use other stimulants or, or other drugs on the weekend and it doesn't become a problem for probably 90 percent of people. Um, it's, it's it's a smaller amount of people that may have other underlying issues that it, it can actually get to that stage with. So we were looking at really um, doing an assessment with the person to see where they would be sitting on that spectrum, and then that that ultimately then um, really um, provide a, a clearer picture of the type of support that the person needs to actually address those issues should they want to. Okay, and then when you were just saying there about the underlying issues, mm-hmm. would that be mainly like mental health problems or could it be I don't know some kind of I suppose a trauma is a mental health thing but yes do you know like what kind of things absolutely would make so someone addicted I, I think the answer to that is there's no clear answer there's no standardized answer at least Oksana so mm. I guess we there's a lot more research coming out on trauma um over the last few over the last probably five years um specifically what's been ongoing in the background for quite a long time um, and you're absolutely right when you say that trauma will be a mental health um, issue. So, yes, I, I, I guess if you go out into the population and, um, you know, if you were to, say, do a recent type of research project and you're looking at people who have chronic addictions um, and you and, and you sit down and speak with them, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who um, hasn't experienced some type of trauma um across their life or across their childhood but in many cases you're going to be meeting people who have multiple multiple traumas um ranging from you know ranging from everything from parent separation when they were younger to um i suppose issues around parental capacity how people may have been um raised you're you're meeting people who have often i don't want to generalize too much but often have 
um, traumas that are really, really, really difficult to, to, to get over. And they play out there. Not often the stuff that happens in, in, in childhood and younger years plays out as people get towards um, adults. And in later life, it really starts to, to, to manifest. So that's one aspect, and I suppose we, a lot of the time, instead of diagnosing people, using these manuals, such as DSM, etc., for anxiety and, and, and depression, um, or you know, personality disorders, and, and, and the rest of the clusters that you would find in those manuals, a lot of the time, um, trauma is really what's going on underneath all that type of stuff. And that's just really one um, area that can influence people developing problematic relationships with substances. The other one, and is a huge one, is really um, social deprivation. So marginalization, exclusion, poverty. These are all real, real um, the structural factors that we talk about in sociology, structural um, factors that then impact um, policy um, stuff like um, intergenerational poverty. And clustering people together in communities of, of deprivation um, and disadvantage, you know, access to to services, access to life opportunities, access to um, basic determinants of health. So there's, there's a huge stuff going on. And in a lot of cases, the people who, re- who end up with really chronic, chronic problems and people who, you know, you may, you may see what you mean, meet being homeless. A, a lot of the time there's a complex mix of traumas. And societal issues, structural issues that are really kind of meeting there and converging. Um, so it's it, it's never really only one issue. Um, for some case people. by case, yeah. Ex- exactly, yeah. It, it's it's not great that although we can generalise in in conversations, I think when you're meeting people on a one to one basis, you really need to just get to know them and get to know their background because it may not always be a case that someone suffered a, a horrendous trauma or you know there's people who come from all walks of life who develop addictions yeah. they come from you know middle class they can come from well-paid jobs where you know stress may have got the better of people and they just learn to you know lean on a couple of drinks or some cocaine and things just escalate so it's biting. I really and I think the one thing to impress upon people and, and to the listeners is that um, drug users aren't homogenous you know they're not all the same there is different backgrounds and, and different reasons why people do use drugs yeah and how would you then what would like i suppose what help is out there for people who mm-hmm. um come out and they say look um whatever kind of problem they have at whatever level what is there out there that can help them from like i suppose from family all the way through to the system okay okay, okay. so um yeah so we'd have a bit of okay let me turn to you mind map this all right so i guess we look at really the 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 approaches to maybe prevention and treatment first of all and to understand the responses that Ireland specifically um, takes and the policy positions that Ireland takes in, in regards to this issue, we would have to go back to um, the national drug strategy. So it's the only really game in town, as it were, when it comes to the policy and the funding and provision of, of, of services in Ireland. And so we've recently, relatively recently, I think it was 2008, had our last strategy and it's a seven year strategy. So it'll be live until I think maybe 2025 and around that. And what that is, um, there's been a number of them over the years, but where we're at now is this, the latest strategy is called um, reducing harm, supporting recovery. So it's a two pronged approach, if you will, where previous strategies have probably more focused on the abstinence side of you know getting people into treatment getting them drug free getting them abstinent and then trying to help rebuild their lives there wasn't always a huge focus on what what we call the the harm reductionist approach although there were are and there were services doing that 
the policy positions probably didn't support that as much as they are within this strategy. So the strategy is a coming together of all stakeholders in society, so public, civil, community, voluntary organisations, and they have thankfully just really kind of started taking service users' um, opinions um, and experiences on board into that to design and be part of service design. Um, some may say it's tokenism, um, but at least we've started. So to, and to come back and answer your question, um, at the most probably basic basic level, so the first probably um, way a service may interact with someone is through what is called harm reduction. And that often comes in, in tangent with what's called low threshold services. So that's a whole ideal and a philosophy or ideology about meeting people really where they're at and keeping the the bar really, really low so that people can enter and get support of your services. Because there's a lot of services out there that won't actually work with people until they are abstinent. Um, which, you know, it, 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 it's sometimes it's a bit difficult to get your head around, but you, I suppose you can also see why they're doing that. They have a specific remit and they want to focus on that area. But I suppose in, in some ways it's akin to asking a depressed person to stop being depressed before, the, before you sit down and work with them. Yeah. So there's the, the, the abstinence and the harm reduction. So harm reduction is both a pragmatic approach, but it's also a policy or a philosophy about, um, I suppose, advocating for policy positions so it's situated in a real um human rights and social justice paradigm and it's about meeting people where they're at keeping them safe and your agenda may not necessarily be about um having someone become drug free and and, and in actuality it's often not it's about how can i help this person at this point in time stay safe and often stay alive to be honest so there's pragmatic strategies such as needle exchange. So um, providing a needle and syringe program for people who use drugs um, intravenously. Um, so giving clean needles. So obviously, you know, hepatitis C, um, HIV, etc. It's not spread, not just not spread between people who use drugs, but I suppose at the policy position, you know, they're probably concerned that that, that, that uh, spread over then into, into the wider society. So. It's about harm reduction, about keeping the person safe, but also then keeping the society safe in some way. So your strategy may be, I suppose, a good way to describe it, and people often look at me funny when, when I say this, is that you are not, you are educating people how to use drugs, not educating them how to not use drugs. Um, so uh, so it's a, it can be about you know how to inj inject safely into the correct veins, how to look after your body, how to look after abscesses, you know, maybe not mixing certain drugs because it can be dangerous. So it's a, it's a really practical and pragmatic approach to giving people information really to keep them alive, basically, and, and improve their quality of life in some way. And a great if that person then wants to... Um, become abstinent or go into a rehabilitation or treatment center absolutely fabulous but the i suppose the, the end goal in itself is actually keeping people safe and alive while they're while they're using um illicit drugs and would that not be seen as maybe you know look I, i'm not an expert on this but would that not be seen as like enabling them then very because good if you're is that, is yeah. finish? Do you want to finish what you're saying there? No, I was going to say it might be seen as enabling them because even though you're showing them how to, you know, I suppose take something that's illegal safely, like you could die from an overdose. So that's not safe either. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, and this is, um, and I actually, I'm really glad that you brought this up, and it's something that a lot of people would say, Oksana. And and I guess from a position of standing back, 
that 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 that's in you know from the not from the average everyday person that's probably the, the, something that you would hear a lot of but i i guess there's there's so much to this and i i, I do want to do it justice because i'm aware that there's probably people listening um to the podcast that would probably you know have a similar opinion so i think first of all harm reduction is really situated in a human rights based approach and if you look maybe to some other countries where they don't give needles out and the you know the rates of hiv the rates of people dying and indeed the rates of people overdosing because they're not engaged um with services so they're, they're really really hard to reach people anyway um, and they literally have zero support so they are going to overdose in fact they're probably more they more likely to overdose without some type of connection to a service in the first place I think that probably brings us into really discussing the legislation about the medical supervised injection centres that have been passed in Ireland a number of years ago. Um, I was actually part, Anna Liffey um, done a, most of the work on that. I was actually working with them at the time as a, as a team leader and that legislation um, went through the Oireachtas and got passed. Um, so basically what that is now is that there's provision to have a safe injecting space in Dublin city centre. Now, obviously, that provides a number of benefits to people who are using. They're not going to be sitting in a corner lane with excrement and with dirt around them, sticking dirty needles into their arms and the health um, consequences um, that come with that. Um, if they do overdose, overdose, apologies, there is a doctor and a nurse on site who can provide um, oxygen and um, medical um, procedures if a person does get into any trouble where it's not going to happen down a lane or you know sitting in some corner block of flat somewhere mm-hmm. and there's then the added benefit of not having needle and syringes lying around down the streets which is a huge problem in, in, in town in the north inner and south inner city and mm-hmm. um, so it's taking needles off the streets and it's taking drug use off the street in general in addition to that then you would have workers there to meet the person and meet their basic care needs be that homelessness addiction and um, there's so much issues that go along with it um, be that mental health comorbidities physical um physical issues um abscesses um we've worked with people who've lost their legs and wheelchairs from abscesses and from not having that medical care because that you know those type of services weren't available or they weren't being utilized at the time um so i think enablement um for me it's probably not the um not the right word to use for me i'd call it support i, I think mm-hmm. enablement is often situated within an absence-based approach from people who think that any type of interaction with, with someone who's using drugs um, that's not based on trying to um, um, reduce or, or, or stop them using that um, drug is, 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 is considered enablement and that, that wouldn't be the position for myself. I think mm. a lot of the trouble that we actually have and we bring it back to harm reduction and the policy and advocating and the human rights and the social justice aspect of it a lot of the drug, a lot of the actual issues with drug use is actually because they're illegal. <laughs> and if it, uh, drug use, what you know, drugs wasn't legal, a lot of the problems that go along with it, people going to prison, you know, they're getting criminal convictions and all the rest of this stuff um, is actually the problem itself and how society and how we view drug use. And we are often influenced by the media and, and, and by different, I suppose, bodies in actually how um, how, how we were conditioned in a lot of ways and, and how we do that. We only hear the horror stories. Um, so for that small majority of people, very, very small majority that um, drug use does become problematic, um, we need to really be working with them to support them. Um, so the same people who have been suffered huge traumas, who continue to suffer 
huge marginalization um, um, within communities because of social policies and structural issues in this country are then the people who are being criminalized for you know point 20 euros worth of drugs to support a habit that they're trying to escape pain and trauma who are then sent to prison and it's taking up huge resources from the country, you know, 100,000 a year to hold a person in prison for 12 months. And um, that's without the solicitor fees, <laughs> court case fees and all the rest. So for me, there, are, there is really only one way to be working with people who who, who do have problematic. And not only one way, I would I always encourage the harm reduction way. I, I, I work with it in different ways as well. But ultimately, you're not going to be able to do a counselling session with someone who's using drugs um, really, really chaotically and just coming into your service to get a clean needle that's not the time for those guys but when they are ready um, those services are there as well yeah so you're you're kind of saying i suppose instead of criminalizing these people and putting them straight into prison do some kind of intervention first absolutely and then, so yeah, yeah and i think that's what we're moving towards so for mm-hmm. for decades now drug use has um, existed within the criminal justice system so anything to do with drugs, if you're selling drugs, I suppose selling drugs is a bit different than I don't want to get into that, but if you're using drugs, you're sent to, you know, you're de- more likely are not charged and sent to court and, and depending on your circumstances, sent to prison. What we've started to do now is uh, with this drug strategy as well um, and the passing of the legislation for the medically supervised injection centre is to start bringing them more into a health-led sphere. So that means we're looking at people as actually having a illness of sorts, a medical condition where they need medical interventions and they need psychological interventions. And indeed, psychosocial interventions, social care workers would have a huge um, input into that with care plans, advocating for people, helping meet their basic needs, etc. as well as counsellors then maybe working with some of the trauma type stuff and, and relapse prevention, but absolutely. So we're moving as much as we can from the um, criminal justice system, although it's still used to, to far too much, in my opinion, to a more health-led approach. And I guess with that, I was, when they were doing the consultation process for the last drug strategy, I actually met the then Minister for Drugs, Catherine Bourne, a minister with responsibility for the, for the national drug strategy. And I showed her around um, Anna Liffey and the different services, and we had a nurse's surgery, etc., cetera, in, in, in there at that time. And we are talking about the decriminalisation of drug use and drugs. Um, but I guess it, it actually didn't get enacted anyway down the road. But what she was talking about at the time is turning the... Um, we currently have a drugs court. So people who are caught with um, drugs generally for their own... Um, in, their, in their possession for their own use can, can go there as an alternative to prison where they will go to court and they will do a type of structured day programme where they may engage in education etc and um, so there's there's a we do only have one of those in the country i believe possibly two and um, but they only cater for a small amount of people so it's one part of the of, of the intervention approach mm. and can i just loop back then because you were talking about um the supports with you know providing the clean needles and like mm-hmm. a safe space to i suppose um to use would do you find that the people that come to these um i don't know what they're called like I suppose the, these facilities mm-hmm. to avail of the clean needles and etc mm-hmm. would they be the type of people would they be the people that actually want to get clean and they see this as a first step to get to um, um instance, as you say yes and no but probably not but also okay we'd have a lot of places it depends where the, the, sometimes it's actually needle um, and syringe provision can be actually done out in the street where they'd ring a number and the, a worker would go meet them you know quietly down the lane and, and just provide them with that but generally a lot of services do that within the service and um, a person is really a lot of the times 
just coming for to get the needles, so they get needles and condoms and, and different paraphernalia, tinfoil if you're smoking heroin. And indeed, crack cocaine pipes. There was actually a story in the newspaper the other day that 50,000 have been given out. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if that was this year or since they started doing it. I imagine it was probably just this year because they've been, we've been giving them out for quite a while. So at, I suppose a lot of the services that do that and, and give those out would be, as, as we spoke previously, is about, it's about harm reduction and low threshold. And the whole idea of low threshold, low threshold philosophy is keeping an open door. Um, and when you're working that way, you're not just working with the drug use and the harm reduction aspect, but you're also very, very often dealing with um, other really problematic behaviours, violence, um, people kicking off, getting angry, shouting, threatening workers. So it's a really, really chaotic environment. It's, it's not like a treatment program or centre you'd see on the TV. Yeah. You're generally working with people who are out homeless, sleeping on the streets, in hostels, but the, you know, the guys' lives are really, really difficult. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, they don't have anything. A lot of people have no family. They, you know, they spend their days walking around the streets on their own. Um, I don't know if you've seen that documentary there the other night in RTE about the, the guys homeless. Um, it's really, really quite sad. Um, and people, you know, angry and understandably, people are angry that their lives have turned out that way and there's nowhere for them to go, nowhere for them to sleep. Services, a lot of services won't go near them because, they, you know, they're the, some of the problematic behaviours that, that, that they present with. Um, so there's a very, very, very small amount of services within the cold country um, that will actually work with people at that level, um, uh, generally. Yeah the centre around the city centre in town and stuff there's lots of other community programs that would um, work with people at, at other levels but when you're you know when you get to that stage where people are homeless huge mental health difficulties just a whole host of of, of issues um you know getting getting drug free is probably the last thing on their mind until they have a stable bed under under back yeah that's actually I'm, I'm glad you actually brought that up because i was going to say would you think there's enough of these services around nationally or yeah, just full stop. Is there enough that's done, or what else do you think should be done? And okay, I think if we if we if we so if we get looking at that. Okay, so let's take the talk. Just keep on the harm reduction and the type of work at the moment. So yeah. if you look at that, um, a lot of the people that those guys you work with will be coming out of hostels, um, or you know, or around who be hanging around the streets and and maybe you know using drugs and and whatnot. Um, so there'll be only really two or three projects that do that in, in town, north inner city and south inner city, which will be Analyphy and Merchant's Key. And in Merchant's Key have a whole place where they give food. Analyphy do the same, but on a smaller level. Um, so they have nurses, they have doctors that people can come in. They actually even have dentists, so specific for these services that people can go in and see. So that's great on a human rights level to uh, look after people's basic needs. I think as we so then each probably community around specifically the um, communities that were in that are in the national drugs and the the, the, the local drugs task force remit and and that's another level so you have a strategic level generally communities that have been identified as uh, as experience um, deprivation and social disadvantage so uh, you know if you look at like um, Ballymoon where I I grew up myself north in a city south in a city Tallet so all those you know areas that you'd probably um, hear stories of drug use and criminality about etc would have a task force um, and that's a body that actually responds to the local issues they fund different services through the HSE um, and in generally all those communities probably they probably come across at least definitely one but often probably two 
drug projects in addition to other types of family support services etc and um, those guys would be under resourced as well but then if we actually scale up and look at rehab treatment so going in somewhere to get a a detox and be a bed in a treatment center for a number of months where you can actually start working on those issues that um have caused an exacerbated the drug use so you know you can go in and so therapy basically more therapeutic approaches there is there's probably about 20 beds in the whole country i could be probably 30 and i could be wrong on that but there's you know, there wouldn't be much more than that. And um, beds for actual detoxification. So if someone needs to go in um, and if you're using heroin, generally you'd be taking something called methadone or suboxone, which is an opiate replacement treatment. Um, and you do that for a number of weeks within a hospital setting. So there's two wards, one in Cherry Orchard Hospital, which has about six or eight beds, and one in Bowmount St. Michael's Ward. That's the extent of public beds for, for, for detox. But then a couple of the treatment centres like Kilmoyne and a couple of other places may have another, you know, six or eight beds themselves. So there's really, really a scarcity of beds for that. And people can be waiting up to a year to get into these places. Um, right. And if you're using drugs or trying to cut down drugs, and it can be just so, so hard because then you have to give clean urines onto that. And it's like, you know, we're asking people who are addicted, to, you know, to, 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 to get stable for us before they can come in. Um, so it's a real, you know, rock and a hard place for many people. Um, unless you're really, really there, you have that 100% motivation. But that's not the reality for most people. Look, any of us trying to change a behaviour, whether that's get up early or in the morning or, you know, start jogging, etc. You know, the motivation can lack and, and, and can be a little bit transient at times. And then we'd have then the rehabilitation centres like Kilmoyne, um, like Keltoy, Mac- Peter McFerry's has a place. Again, you're looking at a couple of dozen beds across the whole country. Um, so we absolutely, absolutely need to be um, putting more into um, treatment and rehabilitation um, inpatient beds. Absolutely, we need to do that. And we could do it um I suppose buffing up the community sector a, a little bit more. Ultimately, if we look at it, it's going to save money in the long run. So just like, you know, not criminalizing people for actually having drugs in their possession, um, opening up more opportunities for people to actually go in and get, get drug free and go on and build a life as, you know, there's immense benefits for the individual, their quality of life, their communities, their families, their education, you know, what they contribute to society, taxpayers, etc., all the rest of that stuff. But then there's also then the, um, you know, for every person that does go in and, and change their life in that way, you know, the, the, the wider the wider society um, for resource allocation is going to feel that as well. You know, less less times in courts, less time in prison, less time maybe in hospitals for overdose and and all that all that type of stuff. You know that the person is not only contributing to society, but then they're also then not you maybe for, for for some people at least not using up as much resources um, in, in in a scarce kind of um, public sector. That's crazy. That sounds. That's. I know. Ne- I never knew. Like this isn't my area. Social care is not my area at all. It's. I never knew how limited it was because you hear about like, oh, there's these services and there's these services, but that that's kind of like all I would hear. I'm not in it, so I don't know. Do you know? So from yeah. the on from the offset or onset, whatever you call it, it sounds like a lot, but really, when you start digging into it, there really isn't much there. That's mental. And what about people then? So, say for example you're you're addicted to something then you go off and you look for help in a service and they say they turn you away is it possible for someone to actually go cold turkey and how long does that last if it does work out okay can Um, they just get clean because they're just so you know willful 
to the answer to that is yes. I, 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 I'll, uh, I'll unpack that a little bit more. Okay, so it's. I don't. I don't think anybody would just be turned away from a service without something put in place. So be that you know, look at we'll refer you here. You can go there, but you can't. Okay. You know, it may be a case that look, you're not. You can't come in here because you're still active using drugs, and you know you have to give some urine, which you know urines as well is is something that I, you know, I, I dislike. You know, it's very it can be humiliating for the person asking them to urinate into a bottle in front of you. Um, yeah. it's someone sta- It's not like a doctor's office where you get the bottle and go into the toilet on your own. <laughs> it's you know oh. there's someone standing there watching you over your shoulder to make sure you're not. Mm. Um, Avoiding a, 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 to make sure a it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To make sure it's there. So, uh, um, uh, uh, you yeah, know, that's that's another kind of human issue for me. But anyway, yeah. So generally, there wouldn't be person be torn away. But people absolutely, and um, because of the waiting lists and because of the trouble getting into services, and I suppose the bar is often raised quite high. Now, generally, what person in that those circumstances may do is start linking in with a commun- community organisation in one of their communities where they'd have counsellors and key workers and social care workers and start doing care plans and looking at how how can I reduce my um, drug intake or substance intake or whatever the behaviour may be um, and start working towards getting into a treatment centre. So that generally that's a, a, a lot is done there. But equally, people just want to decide one day, I want to stop using drugs and they do go off and, and, and do call drugie. Um, and this is an interesting one because we wouldn't have, there's not a lot of stats on, on that. But what, 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 what I would say, and this is really interesting and it probably speaks to some of the stuff I was talking about earlier, insofar as the impact that like social deprivation and and, and, and you know lack of so, social capital and resources um, has, there is research out there that about 50% of people resolve serious um, addictions without ever going to any service at all, um, wow. without linking in, without going to counselling, without doing anything. And I guess what the research is saying in, in that, those circumstances that this type of person, the people who do that and, and go on and, and do well, are people who already have what we call recovery capital. And so recovery capital would be kind of drawing on Bordeaux's idea of social capital, i.e. networks of people, you know, families, mm-hmm. support, friends, resources in the community. That's one aspect of recovery capital. Then you have physical capital, like, you know, like your house, your finances, your education and um, cultural capital. Um, uh, I think there's a fourth one where it escapes me. But, but, but really what, what it's saying is people who are well resourced already. Um, can go about doing that and, and, and really needing either really, really limited or no support at all. And it makes sense because if you're, you know, if, if, if you were, um, you know, keep, um, used to um, intergenerational poverty and marginalization and, 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 and exclusion, and you, you know, why would you, I suppose, in some ways want to, um, give up taking drugs when it's numbing that sense of hopelessness and powerlessness and not having a stake in society. So um, it absolutely makes sense. So one of the things, well, counselling and all the rest of the interventions that I spoke about were really important for people who were are coming from that really problematic um, relationship with, with, with drugs and substances, really, really important to help build their social and their, their, their recovery capital. So linking them in, with, because they may only have known people who they committed crime with or, or, or took drugs with. So, you know, it's about developing new social networks, new supports. Um, you know, finding employment or maybe going to college. Um, you know, if you, you know, having a partner, getting a job, finding interests and hobbies. Because you know, we have to understand that when you're stuck in addiction to that level, 
from the time you open your eyes at eight o'clock in the morning, you're, you know, you're either using drugs or you haven't got you, if you haven't got drugs, you're maybe going out to steal to get drugs and um, buy drugs, take drugs and then repeat that cycle just continuously all day long until you're lying in bed at night time. And the last thing you think before you not off to sleep, if you do get to sleep, is where am I going to get drugs in the morning? So it's about, you know, providing structure and just really rebuilding the person's whole life from the ground up to, to actually make that life more rewarding than using drugs oh my god yeah and um how would you know now i've heard someone before somebody say that an addict never actually fully recovers would that be true is it something that they battle with for the rest of their life or is there a point where you can actually tell someone's recovered and you know that's it they're good that's that's yeah that's a fantastic question um and i guess i this would i suppose really that question often is situated in ideologies and it's embedded in the type of recovery a person engages in so if you were somebody who so i suppose just to name some of the treatment approaches actually it probably contextual contextualize that question a little bit more okay. so for treatment approaches you would have really two broad ways of doing it so to speak and often they are often integrated together so on one school of thought would be the likes of which we've all heard of AANA so you know mm-hmm. um, alcohol uh, anonymous and narcotics anonymous yeah. and that would the question you posed there would very very much be situated within within that way of um, um, uh, treating an addiction so what those guys would say was that you have a disease um it's a lifelong disease um you're always going to be um a, a drug addict or an alcoholic however we have a way of um arresting that if you will and by doing following these 12 steps which are spiritual um i suppose they do have a religious undertone in some way so they won't suit everyone but really what those guys are saying is look you know admit you're powerless over your drugs or your alcohol that your life has you know become so out of kilt that it just got uncontrollable you can't manage that and hand your life over to some type of higher power uh, which is named god but you know it can be people's own conception of what what a god or a higher power would be yeah. so for those guys they would say yeah look you know if you stop doing what you're doing and stop coming to meetings or stop living your life in that way you you know you're you're, you're, you're you always have this um, addiction inside of you um yeah and look that works for so many people and equally it doesn't work for a lot of people i you know i wouldn't be um i'm not the biggest fan um of it but look that that that's regardless that's person that's personal opinion and then on the other side you would have maybe those who would use more behavioral you know cognitive behavioral therapies and so some of the stuff that i spoke about already so you know it's about building those kind of recovery capitals and moving on with your life and addressing maybe some of the traumas and the 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 the, the factors that impact on you using drugs and you know you can be abstinent but it doesn't you know it doesn't mean that you're always going to be um um, some type of um, drug addict um there's the idea about the addiction is that i know after you know a period of time that you know you're not you wouldn't be considered um an addict quote unquote any longer but then there's also people who you know give up drugs or give up alcohol but then would you know successfully um go back to using them recreationally um or you know having a you know meeting mates on the weekend for you know having a beer or two and and, and that's it they can leave it at that 
uh, for other people that may escalate into further use and, and, and back in, I suppose, fall off the ladder, so to speak, and, and enter back into the, the, the addiction um, the addiction spectrum. But it's, it's different for, it can be different for different people. And that's, I suppose, back to the kind of um, not homogenizing what addiction yeah. is. Um, so it's a, it needs to be a case-by-case basis. But certainly there's risk factors there if you're, you're going to go back using drugs or, or alcohol after having such a problematic relationship with them for for so many years. Okay, the next thing I was actually going to ask, but I think it's just going to be the same answer that it's different for everybody. I was going to say, what are the long and short term effects of an addiction? Oh, Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's different for everybody, isn't it? Like you can't really. It's different for everybody. Absolutely. But I, 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 I think. Um, there's there's some people who may be able to or do um, maintain um, an addiction at a certain level for extended periods of times where they will actually hold down a job um, throughout their, their, their drug use and their relationships mightn't become too bad. I would say that, you know, that's probably a smaller amount of people. Um, then there's the whole, you know, probably 99% of people who actually don't develop problems with it in the first place. And then we'd have a smaller number, uh, although, you know, relatively smaller, but still too, too much that, um, that, that the consequences come thick and fast. But I do feel that they are exacerbated by some of the issues that we've spoke about already. You know, the two probably biggest factors there for me would be one, trauma and two, um, so, social deprivation. Yeah, yeah. So those would be the two big factors for people whose who's experience then goes on past that of people who could maybe hold down a job and you know they're you know hold their house and their relationships don't be too impacted by you know the people who are out you know committing um, criminality people who end up homeless people who end up in inpatient mental health hospitals um so there's yeah for me there's there's other elements at play there as opposed to just the drug Okay, case by case. So, and then when it comes to your family and friends, is there any kind of advice that you could give somebody if they're dealing with someone who's a friend or a family member who has an addiction and what they can do? Because I know, like, how how do I say it? Um, like a family member can't stop you, a friend can't stop mm-hmm. you. But is there something that they can do, mm-hmm. maybe to make it easier, support you in some kind yeah. of way? I think definitely. I think this is probably a bit of a contentious area as well at times. So I think there's a lot of a lot of the community programs that I spoke about, or nearly all programs that we spoke about so far, would have some element of family support there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have workers who will work with family members, but often a family member will come in looking at, you know, I'm looking, you know, how do we stop, you know, Johnny or Louise. Um, from using drugs and they kind of soon come to realize that that's not what it's about the you know the family support work is about that person um, and looking at them and how they're managing and coping it's not they're not going to be given ideas or techniques um, mm-hmm. to use with um with, with, with the family member that's actually using drugs you would see on the telly and it probably don't with not really done usually here um, but probably more of an American thing where you see the intervention um, and, 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 you know, the, 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 the person with the substance use issue walks in the door and there's a group of people sitting around, yeah. sitting around waiting for them, often with a worker there. And it's a real confrontational, um, uncomfortable <laughs> situation, mm-hmm. even watching it. And that does happen. It doesn't, that wouldn't, it doesn't really happen here. Um, it's more of an American thing. And um, I, I, I wouldn't be a fan of it myself, though, at the same time. We really, we, you know, we need to realize that if someone is is in that place, it's really hard for them to acknowledge that. 
um, admit that and maybe put their hand out for help. Some, you know, some approaches call it denial. Um, again, I wouldn't be a big fan on that, but sometimes there is that the per, you know, the person does need to have some feedback given to them because it's often the person using the substance doesn't actually feel the impact of that. It's those really the people who are close to them and around them that are seeing it, both um, the risks the person may be taking, but also some of the behaviour, and particularly if there's, you know, there's, there's you know, fights within the house, because, you know, dr- taking drugs does um, yeah. affect your temperament and your mood, and, you know, some people may be really chaotic and bringing, you know, police to the door or, um, you know, stealing from the house. So obviously, you know, the family, family needs to have their boundaries there as well. Um, so I, I think a lot of the time that can be the defining factor that pushes somebody into treatment. So I wouldn't say, you know, I, I, I uh, personally, I just think it needs to be managed well. Um, uh, but look at that's each family's choice and person's choice to, to deal with the best way they can. And that's all anybody can really do. I think they often in the in the treatment centers that would would run on the basis of the AA and NA approach often family members would come down there. Um, and they may sit in a group therapy session with the with, with the whole um, treatment center, and they will confront that individual on some of their past behaviours. Um, I'm not a fan of that. I think it's too confrontational and um, shaming uh, yeah. as well. But um, look, that's that's how those guys go about doing it. So um, far from me to have them not to. But um, so that that's the type of stuff that it would be for families and then family support. And I suppose there would be a, a limited role, I suppose, of education and looking for science. But look, if you're after living with somebody who's a who's, who's a drug or substance user for a number of years, I think you know all the science inside yeah. out at that stage. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. What would you then say is a better way to uh, deal with this then? Because I know you just mentioned the AA and the NA, and you're saying that you don't really agree with how they do it. Um, what would you think would be a better way then for a person? Like, where would a person turn to then? I think I, I think it's not so much as NA and AA themselves, the program. I think it's often the way it's maybe sometimes delivered by certain people. So maybe it's not a huge criticism of the program itself. And, and look, that's just personal opinion. What I yeah. do think and really the ultimate deciding factor for effective treatment, and I guess this is, is some of my own research that I've published on, is, 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 is incorporating so the whole idea of evidence-based practice. So a, a part of evidence-based practice, so evidence-based practice wouldn't be just about a treatment modality. In fact, it says very little about treatment modalities. Um, one, of the, one of the key areas of evidence-based practice is actually um, incorporating people's preferences. So what it is the person wants. So what it is, how they want you to work with them, what type of interventions the person wants you to work with, and how you incorporate their cultural beliefs and ideas into your treatment approach, and how you can work with their values. So for me, if if someone says, look, I want to go to AA, absolutely go, go there, because if you believe that that's going to help you, it actually has a better chance of helping you than not. And so it's the whole idea of building expect expectancy or placebo effect. And likewise, if someone says, I don't want to go there, I just can't get my head around the whole higher power idea. Um, I'd be working with them and say, look, you know, maybe a, a rehabilitative and behavioral type approach may be actually more beneficial for you. Ultimately, if you don't believe in the type of um, treatment or service that you're getting, if you haven't got confidence in it, it's in all likelihood not going to work. And I think what happens then and it happens in a lot of these places is that that person then is seen as resistant, as being in denial. And it's a failing on the person's um, behalf and not on actually the treatment approaches. 
um, behalf. So, um, and then that you know that that brings up its own um, issues in in the therapy setting, yeah. where um, you know it's it's quite easy for a practitioner to get frustrated and blame the client, um, and then as a client, you know, you may start internalising that. And and I could impact you ever sticking your hand out for help again. So I'm really about incorporating people's feedback and the preferences and how we can adopt the treatment style and approach as much as we can to meet those needs. <clears throat> Well, yeah, that's it, because if someone doesn't want to do something, you can't make them unsure it's just useless and they'll just be there, but not there, if that makes sense. Absolutely. They may not even be there. In all likelihood, they're going to walk out. If you're being confronted for being in denial or for being difficult um, or not open and, you know, defensive when it's not actually, you know, you really fundamentally don't agree. Um, I I, I guess it's like if you went to the hospital um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you may be, you know, you, you, you you don't know you have maybe say let's say you had something like diabetes and you went to the doctor and he says look you know you know here's these injections you need to take these every day and you're absolutely terrified of the needles but the the other option was a was a was a tablet or a pill of some sorts and you weren't being offered that <laughs> you know how would you feel uh, yeah so, you know, exactly. an analogy around it so it's the whole idea of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice within the therapy sense okay cool darren i won't lie to you i thought that was so interesting and I could probably sit here and ask you tons and millions of questions um sometimes when you were talking through that whole thing my mind was kind of racing and I was like okay what do I ask next and what do I ask next but I think we'll wrap it up here for now um perfect we'll we'll end it with um I suppose is there anything that you kind of want to add to what we were just talking about um I guess to um to sum up I I think and it's probably quite apparent if you've listened throughout the throughout the podcast is that there's no simple answers and people are different addictions are different ways of working are different um, and service provision is different and even policy is often different I think ultimately to to, to work effectively within this space in my experience and I suppose having spent you know over a decade um in that um is meeting people where they're at um engaging with people at i suppose their level and when i say their level i mean where they're at um, be that with their motivation or drug use nothing else and you need to just support them and, uh, and be a ear um, for them to, to speak to you with a cup of tea provide needles or paraphernalia or is there something more the person wants and if they want more well then you work with them um to, to, to help them to support them to get that as well and the treatment, the approaches are probably not as important as the person delivering them. Um, and, and it starts with an empathetic and caring person who's, who's willing to negotiate goals and, and willing to work with a person within the within the context of what, of what they want. Um, so, yes, that's it. Perfect. That's great. Thanks very much for coming on. No problem. You're welcome. And that was Daryl Mahan, our in-house expert in social science on the topic of addiction. I hope you found this informative and interesting to listen to. That's all for this podcast, you guys. Goodbye for now.